Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. Episode 241 kicks off right now with our special guest, Ken Collins. He is a principal engineer at Custom Inc. and an AWS serverless hero. In this part one of our discussion with Ken, you're going to hear how a young project manager even though he might be labeled as creative due to his previous experience as a graphic artist, for him, it was about the quality. Ken had a desire to become a programmer, but he's actually self-taught. In this episode, you're going to find out what the circumstances were that caused him to dive into programming, and he's going to share his learning processes. How are Ken's learning processes like a banyan tree? Well, I'll let you listen and hear that one for yourself. There's something else to listen for in this episode, and it is the early influence of technical communities. And this one comes from Ken's mother and the sponsorship of that technical community that has made being a part of a community a staple in Ken's career. Here we go with part one of our discussion with Ken Collins. Ken Collins, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey Podcast. Thank you, John, Nick, to both of you. Awesome. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what your job is right now? Certainly. So my name is Ken Collins. You might find me on social media and other fun things as Metaskills. I'm a principal engineer at Custom Inc. Been there a little more than 10 years now, uh, and I've been programming probably for about 15 or 16 years, so... Definitely started off as just a regular old engineer and kept at it for a while. Been lucky enough to been sort of awarded some public accomplishments. So I'm also an AWS serverless hero, and I try to expound or expound on all the things that are cloud related and mostly Lambda. So I do some open source projects related to Rails. Started off my uh, programming career in Ruby and Rails, and I just sort of keep moving with that. Keep trying to help people running Rails applications, which uh, Custom Inc definitely does. And then just anything that has to do with the cloud, I'm just enamored with it. And here lately, as with probably everybody else's public roadmap, uh, AI, AI, AI. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just worried about somebody knocking on my door, offering to, to clean my windows and tell me that they also feature generative AI. Everything comes with generative AI these days. Well, part of 
training our generative AI models for the podcast is getting people's story and talking about where they started. And you actually didn't start in programming at all, Ken. If I recall, I think you did some consulting work for a media technology company. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We'll, we'll skip the uh, the paper route, you know, and maybe the uh, 15-year-old graphic artist working on Xerox computers uh, and stuff like that. But, you know, going further back, it was sort of a graphic artist. And that set up my career in what was traditionally known in sort of the 2000s as your new media companies, right? And that was that was basically the the ad agencies that got it, right? Like, everybody was like, paper's going to be dead and... You can't just throw money in certain buckets like radio or, or or print or other things. You actually have to put your media online and you can track it and you can understand it and you can monitor it and you can watch its conversions and stuff. And uh, that was a company here in Norfolk, Virginia called Stratum, uh, Stratum New Media. Your graphic design background got you in the door then? Definitely. You know, so I wasn't a creative at that. It was more like a project management, sort of very middle management, right? You know, helping run the projects. Definitely didn't know technology, right? Like I knew enough to code an HTML page, uh, but it was very, very sort of new middle management. And at that point in my career, you know, I think maybe early 20s, not a lot of empathy from my side, not a lot of, not a lot of knowledge. That's probably with a lot of agencies. It's just a lot of hype. And just selling stuff and just winging it and trying to figure out how to get things done. I guess harder. It was like it was like uh, an agency. You just throw the creatives in a basement, right? And you kind of say, "Come up with this." And but at a new media company, it's like you got to throw the creatives and the technical people <laughs> in the basement and see what kind of pops out the other side. But yeah, it was definitely my uh, my creative endeavors and some of the, the the technical solutions that I was able to do during that creative endeavor, uh, whether it be sort of optimizing print methods and stuff like that and production methods sort of helped me uh, land that job. When did you recognize that you enjoyed the creative side of any type of work early on? Like you, you mentioned getting into graphics, you mentioned the creative side of the work you did at Stratum. So I'm just curious, when did you recognize, oh, I, I like to be creative in what I'm doing? That's a good question. I don't know if I've thought too hard about that. I don't know why, but I, I do that, right? Like it's, uh, let me sort of give you an example and then maybe I can answer the question. But um, right now as I'm doing generative AI stuff, I'm learning, I'm building out what I've known as called a RAG or sort of a, it's called a retrieval access generative, right? Where you basically extend the AI model with, uh, with data that it doesn't have through an extraction technique and then prompt embedding. And, you know, I've built out the, uh, the RAG. I've made it look like chat GPT and I've just been having a lot of fun putting polish on the UI, right? Like I've made the little paper airplane glow green when it's, uh, when you put text into the input box, I've made the input box grow exactly five rows tall and scroll. If you start putting more content into it, I've, I've always liked putting the finishing touches on things. So I think maybe the answer to the question is, is one of quality versus uh, creative design. So I've always felt like when I was a, a product manager at Stradleman, I, I would say a project manager is that I never really felt like I got the the quality that I felt like things needed when either creative or technical people handed back things to the Gantt chart. So I think the I think the word is quality, not necessarily creative. It sounds like you're talking about the the kind of UI, but like maybe crossing over into that full kind of user experience mm -hmm. so that it feels good to use the thing. 
Yeah. It's, it's not that it works really well, although that's really important too, but you also want it to feel good when you're working. Yeah. And I think that's only recently been called out as kind of a separate thing that people are uh, pursuing and studying. Well, and quality could be efficiency too, right? So when I was a mm -hmm. graphic artist, um, you know, at a particular time of year, and this is when your ads went into these paper books called like the yellow pages, right? Sorry, not familiar. Not familiar at all. It's this thing that holds your door open or that you try to rip in half after you get very, uh, very fit, <laughs> right? There's a lot of local companies that need to optimize putting that in, right? And so like, how do you streamline the process so that you can take in these graphics and then output them in a way, you know, and I, and I really nerded out on how the, the RIP software works, which was funny. I, I did a job at Custom Inc. in our production facilities where I had to use RIP software again, uh, which converts PostScript into raster vector graphics for either screen printing on offset presses or in, or in our case, T-shirts. But like, it, it's quality. It, it's just knowing that something is efficient or works well, like UX, or and then in there's that other part of the triangle that I really like, which is, does it provide business value, right? So I will never sacrifice any of the other, the other two for the other, right? I'm, I'm not Picasso. I'm not sitting here doing this stuff or, you know, just because it needs to be done and humanity needs it. <laughs> like there's, there's, there is a goal. Business value. Yeah. It's like, it makes me feel good. It very efficiently goes ding and glows green. Uh, what does it do? Oh no, that that's it. It doesn't do <laughs> anything except those things. I think there's a fourth <laughs> element to the wheel here or a fourth quadrant that I heard was it gives me a sense of accomplishment and meaning to induce that level of quality into the process, the output, or whatever it is that you might be doing. Are you asking like uh, how like might you get that type of quality out of people you're working with or no i'm sorry that was uh that was a john whiteism where i just say something and don't actually ask a question i actually would be interested though to your point how did you give the people feedback and teach them to produce things at a higher quality in in your work you know you mentioned you didn't have a lot of empathy at the time i'm just curious what was the struggle there and how do you overcome that I don't think I've answered that one yet, right? There's this um, constant thing that I struggle with where, you know, my career has constantly been the I can do it, right, sort of mentality. Of course, mixed with a lot of uh, incredible lucky chances and, and making connections and, and sort of moving and growing. There's always been that middle layer of like, you know, I can do it, and which I think is amazing, right? Like with all this technology we have around us, I think when I got into it, that's something that was not really out there before, right? Like web page, like you can do, like one person can do so much. How do you elicit quality out of people and large teams? That's a hard question. I don't know if I've, I've got enough career advice in that one to, to do it, but I struggle with the topics of, um, you know, process versus knowledge, right? Would process alone get you uh, what you need, right? It certainly didn't for me while I was at Stratum, right? I had the Gantt charts. I had the contracts. There was a process. <laughs> Often at the end of the line, right, like you'd get a product that was like, oh, I had to make a community form for the for the client, right? And we were going to pull this little bit of technology together and do this little bit of stuff and it barely scraped by. <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely haven't figured out how to really sort of do that. But I've, I've been leaning more towards knowledge and less process and then trying to figure out how to give people purpose and context to let them grow towards that knowledge. 
Wow, that's that's a super powerful concept. I like the idea of trying to invoke in, an individual or teammate's own passion, right? Mm-hmm. And their self-motivation. I can still see how process is, is a good framework, but I also kind of, you know, philosophically, there's, you know, a couple different ways of thinking about it out there. It's like, uh, do you need to follow my process or is the is there just like enough of a skeleton out there that you say like, this is what's, you know, acceptable behavior and, you know, our end quality goals and how you get there, as long as you adhere to our standards is up to you. Yeah. That invokes a lot of thought on, on my side. And of course I have no question there. And I think the, something that goes along with that, which may not be a question either, you can't focus so much on the strict process that you don't have the knowledge or that you forget the overarching goal of what you wanted to accomplish in the first place. That's right. And I think the, you know, the context of the teams and stuff are important, right? Like startups are going to have, like, they're going to be less process and more goal oriented. Bigger companies are going to probably lean into more process. I just remember like uh, something happened to me about maybe about five years ago where, you know, before I was a principal engineer, where on a particular team, I was doing some work that was deemed important, uh, either by product or higher up in the org. And I just kept pushing back on it. And, you know, eventually one day I just went to the VP and I was like, well, this work is kind of like, I don't see the value in it. Right. Like, I don't understand why I'm doing this stuff. And then he sort of sat me down and said, well, you know, this is the, you know, and he described like the, the custom ink lab, which is this amazing tool for designing on t-shirts. And he, he explained why it was important that people have this emotional feeling of when they drag either a piece of clip art or their font as they're building this experience for their family or, or, or whatever it was to sort of connect with that in this way. And I was immediately like, okay, well, if, if that's the goal, then what we're doing is not the way to get to it. And then I went and tacked and got, and then said, here's, here's how I would do that. You know, it actually won me an award at Custom Inc., an, an innovation award. And I've always wanted to try to do that for other people, right? To give them that really sort of visceral, emotional context and purpose. Um, can't be purpose alone, right? There's got to be some strategy. You can't say like, you know, I want to win the chess game and that's enough, right? Like you, there's certain ways to move the pieces to get that to happen. And it's that communication of what we're trying to do and how you can contribute to that or maybe asking for people, asking people to give you ideas on how to contribute to that, that really gets them more engaged in getting to that outcome. Yeah. I wish I knew all this. It wasn't my role, you know, as an early product manager to to be that sort of thoughtful and outputs, right? Like, and and again, the internet was still very new, right? So like, it's it's very much like today, there were people who'd be like, well, if only we had modules and components, right? We could, we wouldn't need to program anymore. We could just pull these things off the wall, right? And you know, any vendor that came along and said, well, I've got experience doing this and I've, I've got a library of components I can pull from, then, you know, you get the contract, right? What that means technically is maybe they just had, they, they had a CSS file or some HTML or a big regex that would do the job or something. Yeah. And it's not like you could just go to an online forum for product managers and say, Hey, how do you tackle this? How do you do this? Were there communities that you could join to meet up with other people who did that sort of thing? That's actually a neat question because what had happened after I left Stratum you know, I, I sort of kind of worked to get fired there, right? Like it was weird. Like, uh, 
Uh, I love him to death. Uh, I think he's passed away now, but he was just a a very sort of New Jersey aggressive manager, right? One that didn't come from a place of empathy or sort of inspiration and stuff like that. And it just, there was just a lot of friction there. So eventually I did end up getting terminated, but that was good for me. I embraced change. And for me, that ended up being a point to where I started picking up uh, HTML and CSS. I was like, okay, I'm going to try to start getting technical. I had a short stint as a marketing director in an e-commerce company. I can talk about that. But after that, like I really wanted to learn programming, right? So I'd done the HTML, I had done the CSS, and there was some things that had happened in my youth, opportunities you would say, like, and how I got into computers from the get-go. And I'd love to talk about that and sort of my mom's influence on my technology career. Uh, but I knew it was based in these social interactions in these user groups. And back then it was just disc niching par- notching parties. So we could all pirate software off a of floppy disk back in the day. And it was, you know, these like a little like software communities uh, that just was just right when computers were new and stuff. And, you know, it's just like meeting up at the Waffle House and stuff. I was like, I need to find a, a community. So I looked out. Uh, there wasn't a lot back in the day. I found one that was a Linux uh, group that met up at a, at a hospital or something. And I went to that and found a, an old friend of mine that had started one of the ISPs, internet service providers, uh, that's your AOL competitors back in the day. And it was through that happenstance connection that, uh, you know, the Linux group was the closest thing I, I could get to doing anything with the computers. And, and that sort of blossomed into the career I have today, right? Just making that one small connection. And that theme has played out over and over and over again over the years. The theme of connection or community? Yeah, it's it's this idea that I know my career is always going to be changing and evolving. And I'm always trying to, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that it's going to be through influences and with the help of people that I meet along the way. You know, so there's this sort of dualism that, yes, I can do anything, but, you know, I can't do it alone. That means finding people, talking to them, learning from them. And then ultimately, you know, the the friend of mine that I met, his name is Mark Embriaco. I think he's a director of engineering at uh, Epic Games now. He ended up giving my my first programming job, and you know, I wasn't a programmer, I wasn't a software engineer, and that was a that was a risk, right? Like, who, this guy's going to be able to program for us, and but it was that connection, it was that old friendship, it was that random connection at a at a user group, it was me taking that that step and that risk of just you know going outside my comfort zone and and trying to find the next thing and stuff and. Everything that I've ever been afforded an opportunity in my career growth has just been from some random thing that I've either a person that I've met or an opportunity that I've seen or where something that I've tried to share and help back. And maybe somebody's seen me do that. And I think that's amazing. Well, you mentioned your mother earlier. Sometimes we see our parents trying to share things with their kids and pass on to them. And that often creates a different type of connection that stays with us over time. Can you tell us a little bit more about your mother's influence on your early childhood and how that's carried through in your career? Because I think it relates to what you just shared. It was interesting. Like uh, I wrote an article about her on my on the blog I have, and I could share that maybe in some show notes. And where I come from, I'm in this little area called Portsmouth, Virginia. And then I always have to do this thing where if you don't know where that is, that's next to Norfolk, Virginia. And if you don't know where that is, that's next to Virginia Beach. And if you don't know where that is, that's on the Atlantic Ocean. And after that, I can't help you out. In Portsmouth, Virginia, we're kind of a sister city of San Diego, and we're just a big Navy town. And she was one of the, in the 60s, the first female engineers, you know, that's with rulers and stuff like that in the day, in the uh, the shipyard. And I've got all these great photos of her where they used it for PR, right? They're like, 
lady engineers and opportunities here, you know, in this sort of male dominated industry. So she too had that very much like I can do it myself attitude. The thing that I really think that sort of shaped my career was, and I have a twin brother too, is where she just kept bringing computers home, right? Like I would come home from summer camp and there'd be a, a computer there, like an Apple IIe. And she would hold these like uh, software parties at the house where just other computer people, you know, I remember getting ready for the parties and we're just notching discs, getting ready to copy all the software for, you know, the party and stuff. And we would go to the, the Mac user group, which is just a, you know, in 1980s and stuff, which is just a collection of people with, you know, that are enthusiasts about the Mac. And that one's funny because that was another user group that I reached out to way back in the day that just this random connection out of user group just spawned this huge relationship. But like, I think her love of computers, her love of doing the things that she liked to do was a, a huge inspiration on me. I'm assuming that her job kind of transitioned from slide rule to more technology based over time. Absolutely. Gotcha. And I think it's so interesting that you mention her sponsorship into computer groups and and community groups. It's it's an interesting theme that seems to come up a lot. Different people have different emphasis on this, but the associating oneself with a community, participating in that community, giving back to that community, making connections, maybe the the modern version of that is you know, connecting on LinkedIn, but it, you know, it doesn't have to be. And then you give back to that community and then kind of by chance, you'll get something back from it when you need to do a job transition or you're looking for guidance. It, it's just fascinating that that pattern kind of cropped up for you. And the origin of it was your mother's sponsorship of community. Yeah, it's, it's something I've, I've thought about at some point in the past, which got me to do the, uh, the blog post. And I think I was doing that at the onset of the, the sort of the me too moment, right. Which, uh, you know, really wanted to emphasize the, the sort of strong matriarchal influences that we probably have, but don't maybe sort of recognize and stuff. And yeah, my dad was very, never community. My dad had buddies. He never had communities, right. It was just always a few like, uh, like buddies, but my mom was definitely more into the communities. And it doesn't sound like she ever strong-armed you in like you will go into a computer field or anything like that she just wanted you to be part of this thing that she was doing right yes but though i will say that when we went to the mac user groups you know this is back in the 80s nobody i never wore seat belts then uh but she would put the the mac in the front seat of the car in a seat belt so i think through observation i i found out really quickly that computers are important that's too funny it's like huh am i Am I as important as that? <laughs> <laughs> you said disc notching and and that just really gave me some chills and flashbacks. Do it on both sides so you can get double the data. Yeah. For people who don't know, the, the is the five and a quarter inch floppy disks, which actually were floppy. They came with a notch and that was like the kind of physical copy protection. If there was no notch, then it wouldn't write. And they would sell the the discs with like only one side notched, but you could flip it over and like hand notch it yourself and get double the data. Or for almost twice the price, you could buy it pre-notched. <laughs> <laughs> but people would use like, I mean, there were tools to like basically create that exact notch if you wanted to, but you could use a hole punch at you know, any number of a uh, pair of scissors, actually, you know, it just had to be in the right spot. Good for you. Fascinating. 
I never felt that risk. We always had the uh, the little perfect. It looked like some sort of like a massive stapler that just did it for us. Yeah. Anyway, I'm old. So that transition to to programming, it kind of originated, like you said, with a boss who you had some friction with and you were intentionally trying to, to get fired. Like, was that as intentional, like in the moment or was it intentional, like after the fact? Like, oh, yeah, I was trying to get out of there. Yeah, it was over months and it certainly had benefits, right? It, it was it was definitely a point to where I learned to stick up for myself and believe in myself. Uh, some relationships can be abusive and that includes employers. Sadly, it, it can happen. And, you know, I don't come from a wealthy family. I have this career now where I make an amazing salary and I've worked really hard at it. And that uh, that has not always been true, right? So like me even changing jobs was just like, eating or not eating risky, right? And, you know, here in Virginia, we have this really nice unemployment uh, thing. So if I if I got terminated, then I could collect unemployment. And if I could collect unemployment, then I could, I could do exactly what the unemployment funds are supposed to do, which is to retrain and retool and put me out in the workforce. And that's exactly what I did, right? So, you know, I did try to resign nice-like in that particular career. And at that point in time, the, that particular agency, we had what we called Caribbean Cash uh, because we had a, a vertical industry that we did work for in travel tourism. We had Caribbean Cash from our super clubs partners, which had all these resorts in the Bahamas and stuff like that. So they, they're like, well, wait a minute, don't quit. Uh, why don't you just go take a free couple of weeks at this all-inclusive resort and then everything will be cool. I tried. I tried to resign the right way. Luckily for me, that ended up uh, with an all-expense-paid uh, Caribbean vacation. If only it were that so simple. Wellness benefit. <laughs> yeah, my, my main problem was my lack of time in the Caribbean. Yeah, that was it. That was the issue. One thing I've heard about like career journeys, I, I don't know if it's directly related, right? Like, But um, there's a lot of times where people may idolize successful people, right? Or in some case, you know, billionaires or, or things like that. And I've always had this opinion that, and I've seen other people articulate it well, where you're just looking at somebody that's rolled the dice a bunch of times and has ended up being favorable. I also do believe that there's a lot of work to increase your luck. And I think sort of my natural flow through the universe and how I do things increases the odds, right? So as I roll the dice and do different things, I feel incredibly fortunate at the opportunities that I've had and the way that I've sort of tracked my career and the the luck that I've given myself. But uh, make no mistake about it, there's a there's a lot of luck for this stuff. And different people doing different careers are different people than me, right? We're all going to have different lucks and different mechanisms. So I always tell people, don't do what I do. Make your own luck. Do your own things different ways, right? Like, you know, so obviously I'm, I'm self-taught. Uh, I've never went to a, a formal college. If your journey is different... And you need to make that luck in a different way, whether it be with uh, a boot camp certificate or a, uh, a formal piece of paper on academics uh, or some industry certification, then use that, right? Use what works for you. Don't take my luck, my dice roll, and sort of like uh, use them as your own or think that that's, uh, I've been very lucky, is <laughs> what I would like to say. Sure, yeah. I think people, just to speak to your point, you know, people who are extremely successful, might be good at some things and sometimes that makes them think that they're good at everything and it's just a really interesting idea to kind of ask a billionaire for advice on starting a small business for example like when that billionaire was starting a small business the entire business landscape was completely different 
right than it is now with like different contexts and you know different technologies involved and it's like are you really going to be able to get important tactical lessons from that person maybe strategic ones but tactical lessons and you know to your point again like this idea that the way that we've done things you know like i made this job transition this way like okay i'll take your example of being self-taught contextually it worked out really well but maybe it had something to do with the geography that you're in and like the micro job climate there and the people who are available to work and maybe today with you know remote work it might not work out as well like they would maybe be able to find somebody remote who could be able to do that that had whatever certificate or a degree or something and I, you know, I'm not saying that's true or not. It's just that I, I really like the fact that you are not falling into the pattern of, well, I did it this way, so it is an eternally valid way of doing it for everybody. I didn't go to school, so like, why does anybody need to go to school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like the open, you know, I do a lot of open source stuff and that gets me some visibility as well. You know, it's easy to see the top, right? But that's a lot of work there, right? And Nothing should ever be distilled down. Well, you know, if, if only you did this, you'd be a millionaire like me. Uh, I'm still not the millionaire. I think what I can say about career journeys is that I feel like something that's good for me that I would constantly keep recommending is making the connections, uh, making the connections and helping people out. I feel I can say that absolutely right. It still might not be true, but uh, at least for me, helping teach and share knowledge helps me learn it and, and then make those connections. Right. I feel like I'm an introvert, but like, uh, get me in a group of people and maybe a couple hours I'll be like, oh man, I want to go home. I want to play like Tears of the Kingdom or something like that. Right. Fill the batteries up. I need to fill the batteries up, but I sort of exhaust them very quickly at the same time. But the connections are worth it. Ultimately worth it. And did the connection at the user group you mentioned at that Linux user group led to you getting a job? Well, two questions. Did you communicate that you wanted to make that shift and did they give you some sort of recommendation on okay here's what i think you should do i think i came in as a strong possible candidate in that sort of relationship with my friend so i had already um i was already uh reading lots of books about programming i was already trying to build out my own sort of application i was already going to these not just user groups but conferences and talking and learning to people so i was doing all the right things to educate myself. And I had a, a good working portfolio by the time of that, uh, that, that first interview. So it was at that point, it was a matter of connections, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about the, the learning method. Again, this is just what happens to me. And I've, I've seen it happen over and over again, as I sort of retool my career and relearn different things. I have this really bad habit of learning a lot so that I can know a little. I, I've, I've drawn these analogies where we, we talk about these things like the T-shaped engineer, right? Or T-shaped knowledge, right? Where you sort of have this sort of broad top layer, you know, the top of the T, and then you may sort of have a good expertise going straight down, uh, all the way deep down to the bottom. I do this thing where I, when I'm changing and learning things, where I kind of call it sort of banyan tree-shaped knowledge, right? Where you've got, the, got a lot at the top, got a, obviously a main trunk. But banyan trees, I believe, sort of have these roots that sort of grow back up, right? <laughs> and then become trunks themselves. Not all of them I need, right? So the, the advice that I'd got from uh, Mark when he was helping me out 
he was really good at when adopting new knowledge, finding the one thing that he needed either through a table of contents of reading or that one specific thing and just did that one thing. My learning was always like, well, let me go learn about the the sphere and not trust anybody in that knowledge sphere, but then try to make my own decisions on the way to navigate it. So I'll, I'll learn more than I need to learn and it'll give me some adjacent knowledge of things, but then I'll, I'll try to find out what I really need to know, right? And I just kind of call that sort of banyan tree learning or shaped knowledge where I'll give you an example. Uh, fifth level DB normalization. Spent two weeks learning it when I was learning to program. I didn't really need it. I just needed to know what a few foreign keys were and how to build my tables. I didn't end up spending hours in entity relationship diagrams. I just needed a few foreign keys. I've seen other people be able to acquire new skills better. And that was Mark's suggestion when he was uh, giving me my first job opportunity. But thankfully, I didn't need it, right? Like I had good working things. And that type of uh, learning practice, at least for me, has helped me sort of move into d- different places. Because when I, I get that strong trunk knowledge, whether it be whether it's technologies like serverless with AWS or, or databases with Rails or as it is now with AI and learning uh, about retrieval augmentation and embeddings. I've got a lot of adjacent knowledge that is good for solutioning and architecting. Yeah, I think the the wide scope when you start off learning something within a particular domain is coming from the perspective of, I don't actually, or I'm not quite sure if I'll need all this, so let's just learn as much as I can. And I, I like the fact that you were able to start big, and then go a little more specific on, okay, here's what's exactly needed to do the thing that I really need to do. And getting better at the time it takes between starting way up here and getting down to the specific required learning, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, I like that. Required learning. It's hard to do when you don't know what's required. The the AI stuff has been interesting like that, where I, I believe in the value of it. But there's also a, everybody wants you to buy something right now. They want you to buy their course. They want you to buy their vector database. They want you to something. So like it's uh, it's hard to figure out what's needed and what's not and what's sort of the brass tacks of, uh, of the solution and the architecting. You need the dependencies. Maybe maybe instead of required learning, it's the required dependencies for the learning item. Well, what we're really talking about, though, is I don't know if this is uh, thematic in other people's journeys, but it's how you learn, right? So I feel like if there's anything that's true of this age that I've seen, you know, over the past few decades is that things are changing fast and they always will. Uh, so how you learn is, and, and how you solve problems is, is an, if not more important than what you know as a, a certain language or something. Is that um, thematic for you? Is that why you chose this uh, uh, name meta skills? That one was a, uh, I just read a chapter in Ruby about metaprogramming. So I was like, okay, well, let's go find a domain, right? Because I'm going to have to be blogging because back then that was, uh, you know, still highly influenced by the Clue Train Manifesto, which was this sort of marketing book way back in the day that was stop talking to your customers, you know, in this monotone voice. We're going to have conversations with people in the future. We're going to write things called blogs and stuff like that. So uh, that was just a branding exercise on my part <laughs> after learning about Ruby's metaprogramming. But it's, it's it's actually worked out, right? I, I do think there's a, there's a lot of stuff that I focus on the meta, right? Like I ask, you know, the why are we doing the work? You know, what's the purpose of the work? And it's ended up working out well. So if we roll back in time, can you see that influence in that first programming gig? Are you asking with regards to like metaprogramming or... 
not metaprogramming specifically, but kind of your methodology for learning. It's not the skill of programming, but the skill of skill acquisition. Yeah, I think so. It, and I've definitely had my share of dead ends too, right? Like I, at one time I thought I was going to be a, uh, a Drupal programmer, right? Because uh, a lot of the things that I did in marketing were community-based. So I thought a lot of the things, and they still are today, right? We have these amazing pieces of software that drive. Didn't end up needing to know Drupal, didn't become a Drupal expert. Before that was Flash, right? Like, so making things move on a web page, and everybody thought the whole future was just going to be motion graphics after motion graphics after motion graphics. So that one didn't quite pan out. I think there's a part of learning, too, on just kind of knowing when to stop. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I wish, at least for me, that I had more... uh more check-ins with sort of peers that were going through the same thing to go, oh, okay, maybe don't go there, Ken, right? Maybe, you know, just to pop you out or just some sort of rubber duck, you know, rubber business duck, right? That just kind of says, remember, you got a goal to do or something. <laughs> I, I suppose that is the weakness of, I don't know what else to call it, but like the the baleen whale uh, method of like, of feeding and acquiring knowledge is that, you know, as you said, you don't necessarily focus on the exact thing that you need. So it's potentially possible to get distracted and walk down dead ends. But maybe overall, in any like, longer term period of time, it, it's, it's net beneficial. And, and I want to caveat that though, with like this thing that I believe in sort of play, right? Where this tinkering that may, may not look useful. I think I've had a success taking play and tinkering and pulling business value out of it. But like there's value in play, there's value in exploring and there's corporations might call it hill climbing and things like that, right? Where you go just to do the learning. And we've embraced that at Custom Inc. a lot where we even have like, I think uh, we, we really try hard to get a lot of the engineers to sort of dedicate full day Fridays to just playing around with things, whether it be something you just want to do on your own, or maybe you can navigate a certain technical solution or, or, or product need in a way that's just not really visible to people higher up and stuff, but go learn, learn for the business value, but also just play around. And, and sometimes you'll get lucky, right? Like with, uh, I do a lot of transcontinental railroad development, right? Where I just kind of start way off over here. And then I kind of start way off over here and they get really nervous. They're not going to be able to connect in the middle. Uh, and sometimes they don't, but oftentimes it does. And it's just, it's just really playing around creatively and technically on, on both sides of a problem. Yeah, it's sort of like the buffet analogy. You go to this buffet you've never been to before. There are a lot of different foods you could try. And let's say you're someone who likes to try a lot of things. You get small samples of each kind of food, and you might discover something that you really like. But walking into that place, you didn't know if you were really going to like their sweet and sour chicken or sesame chicken at the Asian buffet, if that's your if that's your style. Or you didn't know about this other specific way to prepare white rice or fried rice that that they did and you kind of aggregate all that together and like here's the ideal plate at this buffet that that's what it sounded like to me it is now a good time to mention my social awkward uh habit of always ordering uh the same food that the person does in front of me so i don't have to think about it oh wow i guess you're not very picky then huh <laughs> no i'm an omnivore there's massive potential downsides to that but okay <laughs> That's a that's a pretty cool mimicking strategy. From baleen whales to transcontinental railroads to buffets, welcome back to Analogy Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask this question while we're talking about learning. 
you do a lot of learning when you develop a portfolio of work. And you mentioned when you went into that job interview, you had a decent portfolio built up. And since that time, you've contributed to a lot of open source projects. Sorry, we'll have to cut it there on part one. Before we go any further, I want to give a special shout out to former guest Chris Williams for suggesting we reach out to Ken Collins about being on the show. If you have someone with a story that needs sharing on the show, please reach out to us at Nerd Journey on Twitter. DMs are wide open. We'd love to hear from you. And we're always looking for great guests. Going back to Ken, his mother had an enthusiasm about technology, about computers, an enjoyment for the work that she did, and she shared that with Ken and his brother. For the parents listening out there, are we sharing that with our kids? Are we trying to include them in the passions and enthusiastic things in our lives? Many times that can lead to a great opportunity to spend some quality time. It's something you probably would have done anyway, but to include your kids give them a great memory, and you really don't know the impact that that's going to have on them moving forward. It may be a valuable skill that they end up learning. I think a lot of times we don't really take the time as adult humans to reflect and have gratitude for how our parents or other people who influenced our lives when we were younger may have shaped our careers. Take some time and reflect on that today. See what you come up with. I like the story of Ken's discussion with the VP. In that discussion, Ken really wanted to know why they were doing what they were doing. And that vice president was kind enough to give him the context and the reasoning behind why they were doing what they're doing. And Ken didn't go into that discussion seeking to be right. He went into that discussion seeking to really understand what the company was trying to accomplish and why. Once he understood that, he was able to provide some very pointed feedback on helping that vice president and the company as a whole accomplish the goal. He wasn't rude. He just said, hey, if you want to get to that outcome, there's probably a better way to do it, and I have an idea. If we took more time to really understand what people are trying to do, it makes it a lot easier to solve problems. That's great advice for anybody in a help desk role whatever kind of role you're in, if you're helping people solve problems in some way around technology or in other areas, understanding what they're trying to accomplish, truly understanding, and why they're trying to accomplish it can help you make suggestions on how they might get there or do it better. Did you notice the part in the episode where Ken said he likes to make his own luck? Part of that was having a portfolio of work ready. And he had that and was building it by the time he met his friend Mark at the Linux user group. So he was already prepared to start taking interviews as a programmer. He didn't really say who shared with him that he needed a portfolio of work ready. But for the career changer out there, if you want to shift into a different role, do you have a portfolio of referenceable work, things that you've done, whether it's in a home lab, whether it's in public? 
that you can point to as evidence of some experience in that area. And we said it a couple times during the episode, but your path and the things that you need to do to advance to that next level or get that new job or progress in whatever it is you're doing, it might be different than exactly how someone on the show did it. But we can look at the patterns and the methodologies that repeat time and again that made people successful. For you, it may be something more like what happened to Kenneth Ellington in episode 239 where he got to speak to a director of security and that director of security told him exactly what someone would need to be a member of that team. So if you're someone who isn't sure what you might need to do or what you might need to be studying to get into a different type of role, there's nothing wrong with going and doing what's called an informational interview with hiring managers for that specific role. If you want an example or a little bit more detail on what an informational is, go back and listen to episode 168 with Mike Wood. He did a couple of those with Microsoft before getting his job there. I love the description of the learning processes and the illustration of the banyan tree. The idea that Ken went deep, even though maybe he didn't need to at certain times, but it gave him this adjacent knowledge of different layers of the stack, and it it really helped him move around and gave him greater breadth as an engineer. The knowing when to stop when you're going that deep is a hard one, and it's definitely a challenge for people that like to learn. It reminds me of episode 184 with Michael Levan, where he was talking about diving deep in a specific area and enjoying the process. If you don't enjoy the process of diving deep, then it's going to be hard to get by in technology. Hopefully you can find something that you're really interested in learning and go deep in that area because you never know what you might learn that could help you in a totally different area. A lot of times the way we get expertise or get some adjacent knowledge is just by tinkering, by taking this idea of play and experimentation that Ken described. When's the last time you took some time to go tinker around with something new or something you wanted to mess around with, whether it be in a lab or something you built on your laptop, just to sharpen skills or expose yourself to something new? It might be worth taking some time. Maybe it's just 30 minutes. Could you take 30 minutes tomorrow or sometime this week to do that? it might give you a greater sense of accomplishment. Next week, we're going to talk to Ken a little bit more about what it means to be a principal engineer. Stay tuned for that discussion. We'll see you then. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.